Welcome to a special VSA Capital podcast on Cornish mining. Uh, my name's Andrew Monk, the Chief Executive of VSA Capital, and I have with me uh, Paul Rankin, our Senior Geologist. Hi, Paul. Hi, hello. And I've got Ollie O'Donnell, our Head of Research and Mining Analyst as well. Hi, Ollie. Hi, Andrew. How are you doing? Now, we've all been spending a lot of time down in Cornwall looking at the, the mining industry down there, and there's a lot of activity. Uh, it has to be said, I'm quite lucky I have a house down there and have done for 24 years, so it suits me to be down there. Um, but we thought it'd be useful to give everybody a, a bit of a flavour of what we're seeing. We'll last about 30 minutes. We can't answer all of the questions, but we'll give you a bit of a flavour. And of course, if people want to know more afterwards, then they can contact us directly. But I think the, the way we'll kick this off is, Paul, perhaps you could um, just quickly explain why it is that Cornwall is so resource rich and what the geology was that happened millions of years ago. Well, easy enough to say that uh, there at one time there was a mountain range uh, in that part of the world uh, that was uh, essentially splitting up uh, when the Atlantic Ocean was opening and this was a period of time roughly between 300 and 260 million years ago and uh, the mineralization that uh, formed essentially created uh, lead zinc copper deposits along with uh, tin and, and lithium and other materials uh, with uh, common uh, intrusions and some of those intrusions lie in eastern Canada now and the rest of them lie in Devon and Cornwall in the in the UK. Yeah I mean when we talk Cornish mining we should think of it as Cornish and probably West Devon it shouldn't we but, but basically you had these three sort of granite um, intrusions whatever the word is come up didn't you so if you look on a map there's these sort of three big red blobs is what you see isn't it can you just explain that a little bit Paul? yes they're called batholiths and they're given that name essentially because of their size which is tens of square kilometers in size of a single uh, of an intrusive intrusive rock uh, and we now know for sure that there's actually several phases of those intrusions uh, into the same general body and those uh, rocks coming up essentially are, are uh, rich in certain elements and so forth that uh, uh, once they cool and start differentiating and mixing with uh, surface waters they start moving those metals around into the surrounding rocks. Okay so that's the history of 260 million years ago and look I think we all know because most people have watched Pulled Out the TV series that there used to be literally hundreds of mines all around Cornwall uh, and Ollie, I know you, you've been searching historical books and things and have discovered, I think now you're up to thousands of mines, but certainly I've seen you do a map where you've plotted, I think, about 300 of them where they all were. But um, what what went wrong? Why did it all stop? Uh, so we've mapped 1,149 uh, mines across Devon and Cornwall. I'm a bit out of date, that's extraordinary, well done. So 137 of them were just copper, 322 were just tin, 251 were tin and copper, and 439 of them were other minerals, Paul mentioned um, a couple of them there. Only 23 of them had a mine life longer than 23, uh, longer than 10 years. And um, few of us sort of longer than 20. So they, they were mining anything from a couple of tons of metal a year to tens of tons of metal to thousands of tons of metal in a in a few cases. And over time, um, 
from I think about sort of 1500s technology improved which allowed a professional class of miners to appear and uh, whereas previously it, it, there had always been a conflict between having enough food and having to go back to agriculture and being able to mine but as technology improved they learned how to um, mine at depth and to extract the copper and the tin at the same time it became a more professional and a, and a, a world leading industry it was supplying enough ore for the entire country and exports elsewhere up until about the 1860s 70s and then uh, miners went started to go overseas discover better deposits in North America um, South America Africa which were larger um, open pit and, and easier to produce from and those eventually outcompeted the UK, which led to it declining um, over time. And I mean, we'll maybe come to that as well. There were some certain, certainly some special situations in terms of uh, mineral rights causing issues uh, and, and tin prices and things like that collapsing, which caused some problems. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but also they used to take a lot of the ore, didn't they, and then ship it over to Wales where there was a lot of coal and they'd process it over there. Is that correct with the cheap coal? Well, it was particularly true for copper, uh, and uh, Swansea was particularly known for the co copper smelters uh, during the 1700s and 1800s. And uh, the combination of uh, the technology with steam-powered uh, water lifting, as well as uh, uh, coking coal for smelting and so forth, made uh, uh, England and Wales the technology leader in the extraction of these metals at that time. And it, it was it was Cornell's weak point that it didn't have any coal, and it had to send concentrate to Wales to smelt it and that it couldn't have a fully integrated industry in the southwest. And again, you know, one of the things I know we've been discussing and we've been going to people like the Campbell School of Mines and, and visiting all these mines and also talking to local groups, you know, it's very important if there's going to be a revival of the Cornish mining industry. And again, repeat, we do include West Devon in the Cornish mining industry, um, that there is a, a more of a coordinated, integrated approach so that it isn't a stop start, you know, it'd be disastrous if we got the industry going again and then it stops because things went wrong. And of course, you also need to be assured that commodity prices are going to stay above a certain level, because if we just have a quick chat, maybe on the, the tin market, because the tin market is, is very famous in Cornwall, but it, it basically collapsed partially because of resources coming on elsewhere at much in particular Maymar. Uh, at a cheaper level, but that's all sort of changed now, hasn't it? I mean, that's stopped and actually there's a real shortage of tin now, and that's why the price has gone up. And suddenly it looks very, very economical, doesn't it? That is true. And the uh, other thing to consider too is that now the concern around all mined raw materials is what is the ESG and carbon footprint? And if you can't uh, demonstrate what your uh, compliance uh, is in that regard as to how much exactly how much polluting uh, or not polluting your material uh, as a product to the consumers is uh, then it's much uh, less likely uh, that uh, you'll be able to sell to as many uh, available um, buyers as there are which is a, a fairly dramatic change just in the last uh, decade to 15 years or so and that's only going to get more rigid still as we go forward well and Cornwall is quite a small county but we may the, there are solutions to that and I think we'll come back to that later but Ollie going back to you know you've got research 1100 mines it's extraordinary but there are 
want a better word, a handful of what I describe as known minds, be they listed or crowdfunded or whatever else that we've taken a particular interest in. Why, why don't we just quickly run through the ones that we see as sort of the major minds now coming uh, forward? Um, so obviously, you know, we should probably just start with Tungsten West because we're the broker of the company. We floated it six months ago, we raised them 40 million pounds. Uh, they are at the moment having to look at their whole process to make sure they've got a process that's viable because tungsten is is a fairly unique metal. Um, you know what's interesting about tungsten West obviously is that it's it's got a ready-built process plant. It's in the middle of nowhere, and the process plant is twice as big as it needs. And so, does that become a hub basically potentially for other mining companies down in Cornwall? Uh, I, I, it has the the size to, it, and I think the the important thing for all of these metals tungsten tin in particular is that these are the metals which china controls the market for in the last bull market driven by china's growth the 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 commodities that outperformed were the ones which china was structurally structurally short of iron ore copper um whereas the metals that it had itself and could process in a sort of vertically integrated fashion, they weren't necessarily the strongest performers. Whereas now, strategics um, and governments are re-looking at supply chains. And I think in this bull market, what you've got to look for is the commodities where China controls it and the rest of the world is short. Um, and at the moment, tin and tungsten are those metals, but clearly we've got the potential to to bring them on on stream and and yes hub spoke processing models are have been shown the world over to be a far more economic approach to mining smaller deposits um than, than trying to do it on a standalone basis I mean, I mean that's one of the really exciting bits about cornwall isn't it that actually they've got all the critical metals they've got all the metals right now we really want you know tungsten tin copper lithium i mean it really is pretty exciting because of that now Paul, let's talk to another one that's pretty well known. Uh, Cornish Metals, which is listed, they own the South Crofty mine, which is probably one of the most famous mines down there, isn't it? And actually, I've been down it. It's it's quite fun that you can literally see the copper in the in the on on the walls as you wander around. Um, but I mean, tell us about South Crofty and Cornish Metals, Paul. Well, South Crofty essentially was the last underground mine in Cornwall in order to close, and that was essentially driven out of business by by a low. Uh, copper and uh, tin prices back about two and a half decades ago in the late 90s, early 90s or so. And now is a, undergoing a resurgence uh, essentially because they had to leave a lot of, at that time was considered low grade ore, but it now is considered very or pretty good grade ore given current prices and so forth uh, in the ground at that time, but it's uh, had the uh, accessible workings of put into it. So now it's a question of redeveloping the mine in order to bring it back to production. At this but point. it's also got flooded, so they've got to dewater it, haven't they? Which is quite an expensive and time consuming thing to do, isn't it? It's relatively inexpensive, I would say, in both counts, because it doesn't really take that much time. It's a, in South Crofty's case, with all those underground workings, it would still take only a little less than a year to, to uh, dewater those workings uh, and uh, essentially to redevelop the more um, the greater expense will be in order to uh, convert the 
uh, working stopes into mechanized stopes as opposed to what was um, uh, more or less hand mining at the time of closing. We, we obviously have these slightly different views on time. A year seems like a long time to me. But what's interesting about Cornish Metals, of course, is that Sir Mick Davis, through his vehicle Vision Blue, uh, has just put in £25 million. Pounds. Um, so clearly he's taking it pretty seriously and he tends to be a long term investor. Uh, so that's quite interesting. And I mean, moving on from that and well-known investors putting money into Cornwall, we've also got Brian Manell with TechMet, which is a, a strategic critical metals fund looking for strategic and critical metals in the West. Uh, he's put money into Cornish Lithium. Now, Ollie, we spent a day with Cornish Lithium. Um, they've obviously got a, a bit of a portfolio there. Actually, they've got lithium in the brines, lithium in the English China clay pits. And they've got a bit of a portfolio of minerals. Uh, I mean, how would you sum up Cornish lithium? Um, well, I think that's the that's the key thing is that there is a lot going on there, um, and there's there's much more to it than Cornish lithium. Um, it's got the biggest footprint by far in terms of mineral uh, rights. I think about 600 kilometres squared onshore and some offshore um, claims as as well. Um, so they've probably got the biggest footprint. Um, I think what's difficult at the moment is to work out exactly what the valuation is with all the JVs um, and uh, how that all structures with, with, with what they can develop. Um, but the optionality between the brine lithium, which we've seen in the case of sort of Vulcan and um, uh, Lake Resources, direct lithium extraction can produce mega valuations if it's um, perceived to be successful. Um, probably more conventional route to market is the is the are the micas, um, which can be um, produced from from the hard rock there. Um, and that's that's proven technology, um, but much smaller scale um, and probably doesn't drive the valuation alone. Mm. I mean, it is proven technology, but actually every, correct me if I'm wrong, lithium sort of process can be a bit different depending on exactly what it is you're mining. And actually, even up in the, the China clay pits, I mean, you've got uh, Cornish lithium, with their process, they're using the Lepidico process. But I mean, literally across the road, virtually, you've got British Lithium who are using a roasting process, which I think is more similar to the sort of the Bacanora process in it that was being used in the clays out there in Mexico. Um, so there are different processes, aren't there? Yeah. And but Paul, you're probably best placed to explain exactly what the mica is in relation to spodumene or, or clay. And also, you made a great point on the morning miner we did uh, some weeks ago about how you should interpret the grade for micas compared to spodumenes um, because of that nugget effect. Yes, essentially there's the three kinds of lithium out there. There's the lithium that's in the crystalline uh, entities, which you would consider the spodumene and pet petalite, and that's the primary mineralization which is being mined in Australia, for instance. And then you have the lithium micas, which include the lipidolite as well as some other uh, uh, things as well. Uh, but they 
uh, are uh, essentially micas or platy uh, type of uh, crystals that have lithium in their lattice, and they are processed differently from the spodumenes. And then you have the lithium clays, which is essentially a lithium minerals which are water soluble, which uh, will uh, can be uh, leached from the rock itself. And that processing is also different from the other two. So, and each of them has their own economic thresholds as to what is uh, processable and what kind of scale can be developed on each mine and, and deposit. So it's a little bit complicated. Yeah, I mean, would it be fair to say that, you know, obviously there's a lot of English China clay pits down there. They're actually owned now by Emiris, the, uh, the French conglomerate, um, but, Cornish lithium and British lithium have got rights over certain of the pits, but it's still quite early days to know which process is going to be right. But there's plenty of lithium there in total, the whole place combined. Was that? Yes, because as they extracted the clay, they threw away the mica as being something they couldn't use at the time. And it's now artificially concentrated at this point in time for in some of the waste um, uh, piles that uh, at some of these mines. And then uh, it's just a question then of uh, what particular process is going to work out with the best economics. And that's still uh, very much at the uh, trial basis here, you would say, across the world at this point. And I mean, I know British Lithium have got a pilot plant and they've produced some uh, lithium. I forgot which was it lithium carbonate they produced on I'm sorry, I've forgotten. Hydroxide. Hydroxide. I knew I'd get it wrong. Um, uh, but moving from a pilot plant to a full scale plant is, is not quite as easy as said as done, is it, Paul? That's correct. Uh, there's a lot of uh, different uh, manufacturing or chemical uh, processes that uh, find themselves uh, uh, very much challenged or find it, in fact, uneconomic in order to change from pilot scale or the lab scale sorts of uh, extractions up into commercial scale. Uh, because And it, it, what it comes down to is unpredictabilities that they can't see at the lab scale that uh, at commercial scale just don't work out. So it's still very much uh, R&D at this point. So there's still, a, there's still things to happen down there in the clay pits with Imris, Cornish Lithium, British Lithium, but the bottom line probably is that there's a there's a life of mine that is long enough and enough product that could be mined annually to create a full-scale lithium hydroxide plant in the UK which would actually be pretty exciting to supply the European EV market. Yeah and I, I, my view is that it's not necessarily you know who can produce it at four thousand or six thousand dollars a ton it's it's who can produce the highest quality product consistently at the moment prices whatever it is seventy thousand dollars a ton if you're losing ten percent of that because you can't get those last couple of percentage points um, on producing battery quality lithium then that's going to be far more impactful impactful than optimizing your process for a couple of thousand dollars at the bottom end of the cost curve and the focus has to be on getting that that process absolutely right for producing what the car manufacturers want consistently. And we do of course act for Alchemy Capital that's trying to build a lithium hydroxide plant in Tees Valley but we won't go there this is a Cornish mining podcast. Let's um, but there's, there's, there's going to be a lot more news and moves I think in the clay pit region which will be fascinating to watch. Let, let's just move again we did touch on a little bit earlier mineral rights because mineral rights uh, are really key down in Cornwall and very complicated, aren't they, Paul? I mean, 
talk us through that. Yes, uh, that's uh, partly because as the mineral rights in many circumstances are centuries old that were passed along with the states and also had special crown rights granted to them as well because of the strategic importance uh, to the UK uh, uh, British Empire at the time they were granted. Uh, that means, uh, but unfortunately, there hasn't been a centralized place in order to look up all of those different mineral rights in one sort of uh, uh, organized uh, uh, database. And as such, then it is uh, much more complicated, for instance, than looking up just a title for a piece of surface real estate, uh, for instance. But I mean, there are some there are some mines, aren't there, that were very high grade mines that you can see were mine, 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 and then just stop. And it wasn't because the ore ran out, it was because they got to the edge of the mineral rights. So if you can get the mineral rights that are next door, then presumably you've got a ready-made mine, haven't you? Well, not a ready-made mine, but the, the opportunity and the likelihood is actually much more in your favor in that circumstance, because as you say, the ore doesn't stop. And the other thing is the ore doesn't stop generally at depth either. And you have to remember that almost all of Cornwall was never drilled. Uh, prior to all these mines being closed. And it, that makes a huge difference as to what the overall mineral potential might be because you had mines which, as Ollie said, uh, didn't last for more than 10 or 20 years. And yet uh, at the time they were producing, we're talking about multi-percent grades that were simply never explored to depth at all. So uh, that's where the option And the technology is a lot better to do things at depth now. I mean, so we also act for Godolphin Exploration, which is run by uh, Mark Thompson, who's a pretty well known, was a big tin trader, knows his tin mines inside out. Um, and he's also been going around collecting min or acquiring mineral rights. Uh, we hope to bring that to the market uh, late summer, maybe in the autumn. Uh, but they've got mineral rights across Cornwall and West Devon, and that could be a pretty exciting play. But he will stay very much in the exploration stage, won't he, Ollie? Yeah, yeah. And the, the, so the key things you've got to get if you want to go drilling in Cornwall, you've got to get your mineral rights and you have to get your land access rights, which in some cases, as we sort of alluded to, may have been separated over time by deals between the original miners. So you may have got hold of your historic mineral rights, but you need to make sure that they are attached to the land ownership or um, you get access rights from the existing landowners. Interestingly, you don't need planning permission to drill. Um, you just need to notify the, the council um, that you're going to do drilling and the British Geological Survey needs notice as well if it's going to be a, a hole deeper than, than 30 metres. And if you've given notice, you've got, I think, four months to restore the site to what it was before. Otherwise, you can you can go ahead and, and drill. You just need the money. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I think, you know, our view very much is, you know, you've got a well-known curve called the Lausanne curve, which says that basically you get value when you're either doing exploration or when you're in pre-production about to go into production production. There is always that dangerous bit in the middle when you're doing all these studies, trying to work it all out, which sometimes makes it difficult. The nice thing about Godolphin, it only really wants to do exploration. So it is the value, very much at the value creation end of that curve, isn't it? Yeah. So anyway, we'll watch for more news on that. Now, there's a couple of certainly a couple of others that we should mention. Uh, Cornish Tin has just finished a crowdfunding run round. Um, they're down in the Wheel Jane area, I think, aren't they, Paul? Is that correct? 
Will Jane, right. It's uh, probably the number two most recognized name uh, behind South Crofty and also one of the ones with a very long history of production at this point. So the fact they've gotten control of it, it, it would mean that it'll be an exploration stage project uh, for pre-development and development very much like South Crofty is somewhat more advanced on at this point. And the other one, going completely the other end of the county, but still in just in Cornwall, but on the board of the sort of Devon Cornwall Council, is Cornish Resources, um, which is the Redmore, which is owned by Strategic Minerals, which is a listed company. Uh, and they've got tin and tungsten up there and possibly some copper, I think. Um, Yes, that's right. And it was one of these situations where it just hadn't been drilled before, but the mineralization essentially was known as to where to actually put a drill hole. It just hadn't been tested. And they put some drill holes in it and they've identified of a, a, a current uh, inferred resource of about 11 million tons and it's still open for expansion. So they'll make uh, good progress on this, particularly in this kind of market environment. But I mean, one of the things, I mean, we've talked, I think we've covered most of the, the major ones we've been looking at, unless you think I've forgotten something, uh, in which case, put your hand up, shout at me. Um, but, you know, we've talked about a lot of uh, possible mines here, and there's probably going to be some more. They can't all have their own huge, great process plant and their own tailings dam because they make quite a lot of noise. They take, they're not terribly attractive, and you've got all these. You can't have them all dotted around. How's that all going to work? Because it's all very well finding the resources, but. Do you have a solution to that, Ollie? Um, well, there are, I mean, both the development stage projects have uh, designed process plants for their ore. Um, Tungsten West, we know, has space within the site to expand beyond what it has already, um, either blending ore, um, from outside of that, which which matches metallurgically, or by adding on to the onto the process plant with new circuits that can uh, treat other types of of ore, um, and there's no reason I don't think why other projects could look at some similar sort of economies of scale like that. Um, but as you say, you can't have um tens of them across the county yeah i mean it, it, another moving on slightly another another thing i mean there probably will be more mines i think because we've been talking to the Campbell school of mines and they're about to launch uh, what they call deep digital which is three-dimensional mapping of basically the whole of cornwall and where all the ores are and the shafts and and we know that godolphin exploration also has a digital uh mapping of basically up the whole of cornwall i mean it's pretty fascinating what's going on. I mean, there's a lot of work taking place. I mean, I was told, and correct me if I'm wrong, Paul, that somewhere between about around, let's call it 50 billion of tin has been, and today's money has been mined from Cornwall in the past, but that the same amount could be mined again. Would you agree with that? Uh, I suspect that is the case, yes, uh, simply because there has been such a lack of uh, exploration for tin in, in Cornwall in particular uh, since uh, the early 1900s. Uh, the other thing is because of the uh, new technology which is available, like the digital mapping, to put all of these uh, hand-drawn copies of maps onto a digital uh, computerized uh, framework in order to be able to uh, 
demonstrate that where exactly the, uh, these mineralization is underground, then you can see where the gaps are on the known loads of between mines that uh, the old timers uh, just didn't, weren't aware of that, that that was there. And the other thing I would say too, is that there's still even more um, technology to, to be added to the potential because things like the seismic or underground uh, uh, mapping of the, these uh, loads and, and so forth would make it possible, for instance, in order to create maps, which is, people just couldn't have seen where these uh, mineralized uh, structures are uh, in order to target them for the drill uh, rig. So um, yes, I think there is a lot of potential left there. I mean, it's it's incredibly exciting for Cornwall as a county, and and you know it's, it's well known as a fairly sort of poor county, certainly down the middle of Cornwall, perhaps not on the coastal towns where <coughs> certain Londoners have second homes. Um, but you know it, the jobs that will come with this are huge, and I mean, do you think the government understands enough about what's down here? Because I mean, we're, this is a potentially a huge opportunity for the UK. I think the government is behind the curve, uh, I think, as to what they might be able to do with it. And the question then becomes is uh, how uh, how much are they willing and able to catch up? And second of all, uh, how, how much are they willing in order to create the incentives to really push after it, not only for the mineral wealth and the possibilities there, but also for the social and, and uh, community impacts uh, for the benefit of uh, everybody in the UK uh, that this might provide there mm. as far as job growth, as far as uh, uh, employment uh, and uh, wages uh, uh, growth and that sort of thing. And what is otherwise uh, relatively um, deprived uh, job sector down there. So. Yeah, and I mean, Ollie, you've got a whole stack of books now on your desk with all these mines. And as you say, you've plotted them all on a map. I mean, we're doing a lot of research here. I mean, do you think the uh, the stock market is aware though? I mean, two things, one of the size of the potential, but also, you know, mining can be a bit risky at times. Um, no, I didn't think it's aware of the size of the potential. And we talked about four or five companies. And I, I guess there's a, you know, there's mentioned holiday homes and that sort of thing, um, which people probably think is going to hold development up but we've got some numbers so Cornwall is 3,563 kilometers squared if you exclude special conservation areas of 400 kilometers squared the companies we've mentioned it totals about 800 kilometers squared in terms of licenses that's secured and mineral rights that are secured and if you take out a kilometre around the coastline, that's another 700. So that leaves you still with about 1,600 kilometres squared of mineral rights that could be uh, explored, which is a significant area. So I think you will start to see more companies um, appearing and the companies that do exist over time adding to their portfolios. You're going to be on Mastermind soon. <laughs> You know, with all these statistics, fantastic, Ollie. Have you got any final ones you want to throw out before we have to call it a day at 30 minutes? Those are the best ones, I think. <laughs> well, I, I know you've got a huge amount of information. I've seen the books on your desk, and actually I've given you a few, which I've picked up from the Truro Museum, which does have uh, a very interesting mining hall, as does the Campbell School of Mines, actually. Uh, Paul, have you got any final comments? We come to the 30 minutes. Look, any final comments you'd throw in? Yes, I want to put one in real much about the social license to operate because the, 
the UK is a relatively densely populated area and people get uh, all kinds of negative ideas around mining that will be big open pits and that sort of thing. And that has historically been the case with the clay pits and so forth. But mining, modern mining is now different and more aware. So we're going to see much different if as these mines are developed, a much different way of extracting these minerals. And that really means that the footprint of what will be noticeable by the general public around these mines will be much lower than what people understand. And any kind of waste materials will either be hauled away or otherwise placed underground or put back in the old clay pits, for instance, and covered up. So the actual appearances for the general population that doesn't otherwise understand mining uh, from what it was as a legacy is going to be uh, much different and better than before. Well, the Eden Project has proved that. You can turn a, a clay pit into a, an absolutely stunning sort of Amazon rainforest under glass. Look, it, uh, we've come to the end of 30 minutes. I mean, actually, we, we do, we've done an awful lot of work on in Cornish mining. We have a lot of information. We are going to be very active there. So if anybody listening to this thinks, well, that's fine. I knew all of that anyway. We actually do know an awful lot more, but we just want people to get a bit of a flavour for it. But anybody is welcome to uh, message any of us directly and, and get more information from us at any time, pretty much. But Paul and Ollie, thanks for, for, for having a little chat with me about Cornish mining. Um, and it's, it's an incredibly exciting future. And I think there's going to be a lot of money to be made for people who can get it right. So thank you very much. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you.